Good morning. Palm Sunday remembers Jesus' dramatic entry into Jerusalem. Uh, the setting was the time of the Passover feast, which was by far the, the largest, the most important of all the Jewish festivals. So Jerusalem was mobbed with hundreds of thousands of extra people who came and to celebrate uh, the Passover feast. And as Jesus arrives into the city, pandemonium breaks out as masses of people are gathering and crowding. And you can just picture people are, are pushing and running. They are shouting. The the atmosphere becomes so frenetic. People are not only yelling praises to God and, and calling out praises to Jesus, they are breaking off palm branches, waving them. They're casting them before the donkey that Jesus is riding on. And, and then in their enthusiasm, people literally began to remove their outer cloaks and throw them on the ground in front of Jesus so the feet of the donkey would not touch the ground. We read in Scripture they were declaring, glory in the highest, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And then a few days later, He's hanging on a cross, his lifeblood pouring out. How do we process all of this? How do we understand what took place, who Jesus is, what seemingly went horribly wrong? There are many, perhaps most people, would see Jesus as somewhat like a, a Martin Luther King figure, this man of, of great ability, effective ministry, whose, whose life and time here was tragically cut short. And in the years since, we remember him. And think of his teaching and of his example. But for true Christians, Jesus is no one less than the Son of God. The Savior. Our risen King. And the living hope, indeed, the only true hope that any of us can have. So this morning, I want us to look at what is true about this most famous death in all human history. And so we're going to go back centuries, 700 years before Jesus walked in this earth, we're going to go to the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, who those centuries before in this famous chapter, Isaiah 53, describes the Messiah, the Christ whom God had promised to deliver his people. And read and give attention to how scripture spoke of him years before and gave meaning and clarity to this famous death. Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 1. And as we read, this week, the, the most powerful part of preparing was simply reading this chapter out loud to myself. And considering these words so amazing, how can we comprehend? 
Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no former majesty that we would look at him, and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. As for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you in your graciousness would, would cause your spirit, the living spirit to enter every heart and mind and bring attention and depth of meaning that we would understand what you have said to us. And so respond appropriately to what you have done for us that we might by grace be with you. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. What is true about the death of Jesus? We're going to examine five true statements that we we see from the passage. The first of these is that Jesus' life itself was not what people expected. Now, as the Christ, the Messiah, he was greatly anticipated by the people. They were waiting for centuries for the Messiah, the deliverer that God would promise. And certainly as Jesus began his ministry and performed all sorts of miracles to the like that no one had ever seen, the crowds built and attention was upon Jesus. 
His name was known throughout the nation. But in, in all else, in, in what he had to talk about and in, in what he didn't do, Jesus was surprising. Jesus was not the king they were looking for. And we see from the passage, he, he was very ordinary. You would walk by Jesus the man and we're told you would never look twice. There was nothing about his appearance that would cause anyone to be impressed. Jesus did not fit anyone's model of the long-awaited deliverer. Verse 3, he was despised and rejected by men. He was despised and we esteemed him not. And when he was crucified, many people thought, uh, there's confirmation. He was not only a fraud, God himself must be against him God would never allow the Messiah to die. Not, certainly of, of all means, by the shame of crucifixion. Verse 4, surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken and smitten by God. For those who were anticipating a Messiah, Jesus' death was a tremendous disappointment. Which brings us to the second truth. That Jesus' death, his death, is what we desperately needed from Jesus. Now we'll never grasp this. The necessity of him dying for us unless we begin to grasp what is our greatest need. And the Bible is very clear about this. From, from beginning to end, the Bible makes very clear that our great need, our burden, our problem is that we are all sinners. Every last one of us. And the Bible says this, the wrath of God is against all sin in man. And we saw in our passage what is then quoted later in Scripture. In verse 6, we all like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. So we are all sinners, and the Bible clearly says the wrath of God, the judgment of God is against all sin. This is not God being mean-spirited. Indeed, it, it is the opposite. On the contrary, this is God being more of goodness and more of justice than we really want. We all want God to be good. And we want God to be just against terrible people and terrible acts. Right now, we want God to be just in Nashville. We want God to be just for those who bring tragedy and heartache. We want God to be good to do that. But how good do we want God to be? Do we want God to be so perfectly good, so completely just, that he does not let a single sin pass by his attention and his hand not come against us? That God is so thoroughly and completely good that he will not let any sin 
escape his attention. It is the perfect goodness of God, the perfect justice of God that causes all of us to be in a terrible situation. We all face God's justice and we did so on our own until Jesus stepped in. Verse 5, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our sins. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. By his wounds, we are healed. Which brings us to the third truth about Jesus. He whose life was not what people expected. His death we desperately needed. And thirdly, that Jesus died on purpose. Jesus died willingly. Verse 7, he was oppressed. He was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. And we read in the Gospels as Jesus is taken before the Roman governor Pilate, all sorts of foolish and slanderous charges coming against him. Pilate seeing that it is all a farce. Pilate wanting an, an excuse. The Bible says he knew that it was just out of envy that his enemies had accused him. And Jesus refused to defend himself. He refused to speak. In silence, he allowed all of the injustice and the crime against him to be carried out. And it was Jesus who gave himself to the cross and to death. Now, no one watching this understood that. Not one person watching truly comprehended what was taking place. Not one person. Jesus' enemies thought they finally had gained control of the situation and they were now going to get their way. Jesus' followers thought that the most dreadful thing had happened and that evil had won the day. Have you ever thought that? But they were all wrong. There is a, a debate we'll hear at times. People will, will say, who actually was most responsible for crucifying Jesus? Was it the Jews, the religious leaders who accused him, who, who had him drugged before Pilate? Or were the Romans responsible? Pilate has the one, was the one who had the authority to give the death sentence. It was the Roman soldiers who unmercifully beat him and mocked him. They were the ones who carried him and, and drove in the nails and thrust the spear into his side. Who was really responsible? Others, it was Satan because evil was behind the motivation of it all. And though there's, there's truth in each statement, there, there's responsibility by each. But who is most responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus? It is no one less than God the Father. It was the Father's plan that the Son would sacrifice himself to pay for sin. Verse 10 Yet, it was the will of the Lord 
to crush him. He has put him to grief. For the Son of God to be born of a virgin, to be truly God and truly man, and live a sinless life, the, the first person to live a sinless life in this world. That was necessary. God to be flesh lived perfectly, and that man who was also God, then for him to step in between the judgment of God and us, for Christ to step in between and take upon himself to gather that mountain of sin. Every huge sin, every small sin, every forgotten sin, every nagging sin, every shameful sin, every justified sin, every single one he pulled upon himself and God who is perfectly good and just punished sin on his son and the wrath of God fell on Jesus, his beloved son. Because there's, there's only one other option that we eventually die and we stand before God still carrying our sin and the judgment of God eternally falls. This was the only way for God to exercise his character. He must be perfectly just and he desires to show on Unfathomable love. And through the sacrifice of his son, God astonishingly did that. Perfectly just. Love beyond comprehension. And it met in Jesus and was displayed as his life poured from him and even then he said father forgive them for they they know not what they do we can't have someone take too much time in the line in front of us without being irritated and then telling someone in the car about it afterward Jesus, he was not what people expected. Jesus' death was what we desperately needed. Jesus died on purpose. And fourth, Jesus died triumphantly. Verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, the death, the pain, the suffering, the agony, it was real. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. For as we heard two weeks ago, for the joy set before him, Jesus went to the cross. Jesus died triumphantly, for in his death he overcame what has conquered and will conquer every one of us. Sin, death. We all fall to sin, we all die. No one defeats sin, no one defeats death, except, except the one, only one, the person of Jesus. He 
alone. The crucifixion was horrifying. For those who bore any responsibility on earth, it was evil. But nothing went wrong on the cross. The plan that was established before the molecules came together to form the universe. When the Bible tells us, it speaks of Jesus as the lamb slain before the foundation of the world. God created this world and brought you into existence knowing what it would require of him to do so. Jesus accomplished everything needed to restore those he had created to be with him, to know him, to love him, to receive his love, to be in joyful fellowship with him. We were created for that. We went our own way and Jesus did everything necessary to save us, to remove judgment so we can enter into the relationship God created us to have with him. And fifthly, Jesus who died triumphantly. Fifth, Jesus lives triumphantly. Verse 12. The end of the chapter, therefore, all of this description of what Jesus had suffered, of what he endured, and it tells us, therefore, there's the reason for this. What was all this for? Therefore, I will divide him. The father saying, I will divide with him, Jesus, a portion with the many, those whom he saves. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Jesus today is dividing the spoil and making transgression, intercession, which means that he is alive. His resurrection Physically raised, not the soul of Jesus, not the memory of Jesus. Jesus, flesh and blood, breathing Jesus is alive right now. Jesus in bodily form is in the presence of the Father ever living. And we're told he is doing two things. He is dividing the spoil. That's what conquerors do. When they conquer, they divide the spoil, what they gather. Jesus is giving the benefits of what his death and resurrection accomplished. He is giving to us righteousness. He is giving to us the Holy Spirit to dwell in us. He is giving to us adoption that we become his children. He is giving to us the promise that we will, we will be raised and we will dwell with him. All that Jesus has accomplished, every bit of it, what he has gathered to himself through his victory, he now gives out to his people. And he is making intercession, which is what the powerful do. He is able to intervene, and he does, and he is. And he makes whole everyone who trusts in him. Jesus' death claims singular value. Jesus himself said, I am the resurrection and the life. Jesus said of himself, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. That's what Jesus claims. No one would be so arrogant on earth to claim that much. Jesus does, and his resurrection, also rather singular, his resurrection from the dead is what proves his claim. Jesus 
Jesus' resurrection is the ultimate mic drop moment. Why did God have the prophet Isaiah proclaim these truths 700 years before Jesus ever was born of the virgin in Bethlehem? Long before Jesus' life, why is this description of him given to us? One reason is how Jesus would save us is so unexpected, so outside of our thinking. God wanted to make clear as it happened, this is what I said would happen. This is not something that has gone awry. The, the wheels haven't come off the plan. This is the plan. Second, we need to be shocked, shocked by the cost of our sin. We need to be overwhelmed by what Jesus paid. He has borne our griefs. He has carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. With his wounds we are healed. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. His soul made an offering for guilt. He shall bear their iniquities. He bore the sins of many. He makes intercession for transgressors. We need to know the cost, the price for sin that we would see the delusion of any of us thinking we're going to stand before God on our own and have anything to say in our defense that somehow God is going to forget all the hidden things and every one of you here has hidden things. What we see is bad enough. <laughs> and God's somehow not going to see your motivations and your thoughts that are worse even than your actions. And somehow the nice things you've done to those who you love, God's going to be so impressed that he's going to ignore your sin. As those who say, you know, what they'll say to God, they will not say a thing except glory to him. If they can even eat that out of their mouth, for the Bible says all when Jesus is revealed, even those under his condemnation, even the demons and Satan himself, the Bible says they will all fall to their faces and cry out, Jesus is Lord. Even knowing judgment is coming. The force of of seeing the truth of ourselves will cause every person judge to agree that they deserve it. We must know that there is no hope but Jesus. And as Jonathan Edwards in his favorite a sermon centuries ago as he said and every one of you that has not turned your life it's hanging as if by on a spider's thread and at any moment it will be too late to ask his forgiveness and we need to know all this price 
all that Jesus did. So believer, you who have trusted in him. So that when you fail and when life feels unbearable that you would see Jesus' heart for you. For as it says, he poured out his soul to death. Jesus indeed has nothing more to give than what he has already given to save you, to keep you, to be with you. His heart could not be more committed to you, child of God. So we're left with one crucial question. How we began this chapter. Verse 1, who has believed what he has heard from us? Who has believed? That is the question. Do you believe what is true about Jesus and his death on the cross? Do you believe he is the Son of God come to save? Do you believe his death is what you needed most? Do you believe he died on purpose to save? Do you believe that he died triumphantly? Do you believe he lives now? Do you believe? But no, there are, beware in believing what we must do. We must believe. And God gives the grace to believe, so you don't have to conjure it up. But beware of two common falsehoods about believing. Two falsehoods so common that people believe these by the millions. One, I can just believe and then live my life. In fact, some of you may be here, sure, I, I prayed when I was a teenager, I prayed to accept Jesus, and I believe in God, and you have lived however you have wanted. And the Bible says, you do not believe. You believe in God. You believe something about Jesus, but you do not believe. You are a sinner condemned, and without the grace of God, you have no hope. You do not believe that Jesus is who he claims he is. In Romans 10, 9, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, Lord, you confess he is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised from the dead, you will be saved. We believe that he died and has been raised. We believe he is the Savior and we believe the whole truth. He is Lord God, who requires our life and our obedience. So the falsehood, I can believe and pray and live as I want, is false. The Bible calls it dead faith that cannot save. The second falsehood. I must believe in Jesus and I must keep doing good things to be saved. And that is so common, it is the official teaching of the entire Roman church. So think how widespread that is. Official Roman church doctrine says that this is their words. This is quoting their doctrine. Whoever says you are saved by faith alone, let them be accursed. Quote, end quote. Which is why so many feel they have to do all these things. And they have to jump hoops and they, they have to follow these rules. And if they don't, they cannot be fully saved. And that's why the Roman church teaches there is no assurance of salvation except maybe the saints because that would be presumptuous of God. 
How can you be sure you're saved? How about because the Bible says we are too? So there are falsehoods that are common and are swallowed and are deadly and some like this remove the assurance and hope from millions that Jesus and Jesus alone and just Jesus saves and your efforts and works are to his honor but have nothing to do with saving you. It is all and only Jesus. We do not rest on ourselves with that little bit of pride of I got there and you didn't. It is Jesus. Salvation is not from some moral resolution we make. It is the supernatural work of God to give us faith and make us alive and transform us and enable us to live for him. And that's what Jesus offers now. As you sit here, what is your motivation to take Jesus seriously? That the world is an incurable mess? A dumpster fire? And your life is part of it? That should be motivation. That no one in this world is capable of fixing the world for you, including you. There's, there's no official you're going to elect that's going to solve our problems. There's no scientist who's going to come up with something that's going to make the world better, maybe more comfortable. There's no activist and no cause that's going to lead us to the shining hill. We've had thousands of years with all sorts of good intentions and only one has removed the guilt of sin. His name is Jesus. He stands out. Consider what we know of Jesus, what everyone can agree upon. He lived, he was crucified, his tomb is empty. And no one has been able to find the body. No one has been able to explain it away. Even those who say resurrection is impossible, historic. Historians will say, but something happened. And no one has had a greater impact on the world than him. And it's not even close. So how do you discover this truth for yourself? Jesus, Jesus said, come to me. Call on me. And I will not cast you out. Come to me and I will receive you. Will you confess the simple truth, what everyone here knows about you and what you know about you? You are a sinner. Would you confess to Christ that you need what he does? Will you ask him to take your guilt to be your Savior, to be your Lord, because you need his wisdom, not your own. Would you call out with that? And if you think, I, I don't have enough faith, say, Lord, would you give me faith for this? And he will. When Jesus entered Jerusalem on that first Palm Sunday, he really did deserve his reception. He deserved every action. He deserved every word. He deserved all the praise. Do you believe that? Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus your willingness to send to, to crush him for us so that we can come to you. We thank you, Lord Jesus. How do we say thank you for dying for us? How do we thank you for 
your patience up to this moment to give us opportunity to come. And we ask that you would, you would cause faith to abound in every heart here. That each person would see themselves clearly to see you, Lord Jesus, to come to you, confirm your presence to each one here. Do this in a way all would know, yes, Lord Jesus, you are alive, you are here, do it for your honor's sake. Amen. Would you stand as we sing? Man of sorrows. Man of sorrows, Lamb of God, by his own betrayed. The sin of man and wrath of God has been on Jesus' reign.
Give some quick instructions to those of you who are participating in the egg hunt. We hope you can stay for that. After you pick up your children, you can wait in one of two places. The Learning Center meeting room, which is where you drop off the kids straight in the back. You can wait there or what we call the Fellowship Mall, the lobby that is here. You can wait in either of those areas with your kids. And then at 1145, they will open the gym, which is through the lobby, you just keep going. Uh, in the gym is where everyone can get a spot at 11.45, there'll be an illusionist and magic show first, and then going outside for the egg hunts, which are uh, by different age. And then in the courtyard, straight back here is the egg hunt that is sensory friendly for children that it's just too overwhelming to participate in the larger egg hunt. We have one special one for any children with sensory uh, issues. Uh, we'd just love for you to be a part of it straight through here, courtyard, and the doors are right there. So uh, we're just thankful that you would be here and be a part of it. But above all, if you have questions, Christ, if, if you know you need him, the pastors will be here in the front. We, we would be glad to pray with you. Uh, if you came with someone who is from the church, they would be glad to pray with you. Do not leave. Do not end this day without you speaking to the Lord honestly from your heart. And he will respond. He sees the open heart. He doesn't need your perfect words. He sees what's in here. You, you call to him. Now would you receive God's blessing. And now may the grace of our God, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, rest and abide upon each one of you now and forever. Amen.